the Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel, much times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I am not worthy to be in this house. God damn it. I thought I had it earlier. A good Wallace Shawn. That was not a good Wallace Shawn. Can you do a good Wallace Shawn, Zach? I cannot, Rob. Man, I'd love me some Wallace Shawn. But we'll have to get into that. He's in the movie we're discussing today. But of course, kicking things off, we have to announce that very sadly, this is our last episode in the Paul Bartell series. We made it. We did it. We didn't talk about all his movies in full detail, but we're finishing it up this week with something that I think both Zach and I had heard about. But before we can jump into a movie with an incredibly long name, we have to pick up where we left off last. After Lust in the Dust, we left Paul Bartel on a low note saying that Zach and I didn't enjoy that movie too much. And of course, we pick right up when that came out was mildly successful kind of half bombed and mildly successful if i remember correctly and well what did paul bartell do in the aftermath and of course i think it's just become a hallmark he continued to act and this week i'm actually very excited to talk about what he acted in because between uh lust in the dust and class struggle in beverly hills he had some notable appearances or appearances in notable things i should say such as European Vacation, the National Lampoon's movie, Caddyshack 2, Munchies. Have we talked about that? Or did we talk about Spookies? I can never remember whenever these one-word E's we, come we, up. We've never talked about Munchies, but we have, I think, slightly referenced Spookies. Okay. But he was in Munchies, not Spookies, apparently. And then, of course, in between these films, he acted in something that you can all go back and listen to an episode of Cinemodities about Amazon Women on the Moon. <laughs> Nothing much to say there because we covered that, of course. And even though he's only in it for what four, three, four minutes, something like that. <laughs> and, and that's a that's a post credits skit too, right? Yes, him and Carrie Fisher. Yep the uh, the reckless youth sketch. Absolutely. Come now with me to the clinic. What you are going to see here is not pleasant. I didn't realize we had such specialized clinics here in Iowa. When science is on the march, nothing can stand in its way. Who is that pitiful creature? Let's call him Pete Jones. Pete's first troubles were with smoking cigarettes and drinking beer, weren't they, Pete? Get back! We don't have any cigarettes! Sad, isn't it? So, of course, he kept on acting, and he acted well after he finished directing uh, before his death. We'll get to that at the end, though. But even before he directed... Uh, I'm getting confused. I think I might have my dates wrong. Okay, <laughs> Zach's like, this is all staying in. Even before he directed Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hill, which came out in 1989, there was another movie that he directed and then two episodes of a little television show called Amazing Stories. So in January of 1986, 
he released The Long Shot, which, while he directed, it was written and stars Tim Conway. Uh, I've known about Tim Conway for a while. He's one of those people that you would always suspect he was on Law & Order at one point, but wasn't. He never made that breakaway. Um, but when this came out, it was another bomb. So The Long Shot is about a group of friends, three elderly men and a young guy, who are gambling addicts. The movie doesn't hide that at all. They are addicted to gambling in every way, shape, or form. When they're not at the track, they're at one of their houses playing poker or whatever. And even though they're addicted to gambling, they usually deal in small amounts. And they get a tip from a guy about how he has something he can give a horse that'll make that horse run fast and definitely win the race. But they have to pay him to, you know, to get the tip and, and you know, pay him to give the horse the whatever it is. And then they decide to go through with this and place a large bet to get the money. They borrow it from a gangster, but they realize that they've been swindled by this dude. So they they think that, you know, they're going to lose all this money. But basically, in the last two minutes of the film, something happens that lets the horse actually win. It is a slapstick comedy to the maximum that plays off of our character's idiocy. And for that reason, I did not enjoy it. I don't like when we have overtly stupid characters and we're getting, you know, comedy in air quotes just from them being stupid. Like, there's one scene where the young guy, for he be like, is going out to his car and he starts it, but then he remembers he has to go back into his little camper and feed his goldfish. But he's so stupid, he forgets to put the car in park when he gets out of it. So it crashes into his camper and it knocks over his goldfish. And he proceeds to give CPR to the goldfish. And I'm, sitting, and I'm sitting here, like, groaning. There were, there were some funny moments, good banter, I would say, between the characters. But most of the slapstick nonsense was just straight-up groaners. And I, I was not into it too much. Some things I do want to point out, the highlights probably from it, that I, I would be absolutely remiss if I did not mention. Um, Paul Bartel, of course, makes his cameo as a blind man where Tim Conway runs up to the blind man and asks if he's seen his friend. Oh, Zach, isn't that a knee slapper? You're asking a blind man if you've ever seen something? Oh, it's so funny. The other thing I have to mention is that Tim Conway's wife in the movie is played by Anne Mira, a.k.a. Ben Stiller's mother. Yeah. I I don't think I've ever seen Ben Stiller's mother before, like, 97 or 99. Surprisingly, she was very good looking when she was younger. Oh, okay. I was I was I was like, is that Ann Mira? And you can tell by the voice almost immediately. And I'm like, oh wow, you know, she she had it going on back in the day. So uh, <laughs> you know, that yeah, just like Lust of the Dust, grasping at straws. But the last thing I have to mention about the long shot is the opening theme song, which is actually a rap piece. It is one Ooh. song called The Long Shot, and is a rap it is a rap between two people. One of the people is Tim Conway, because as you can totally guess, he starred and he wrote it. This is just his vehicle. The other person that is rapping alongside Tim Conway is none other than Ice-T. Really? Seriously. This movie starts with a rap between Tim Conway and Ice-T it, it, about horse racing. It's insane. Like I, this is, like, I started it, and I was like, I know who, I was like, I know that voice. I was like, that's Ice-T. I was like, that's that's Cop Killer, you know? It's like, that's around this time. And 
And then just boom, I had to listen to it again. And I looked it up and I was like, oh my God. From 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 rap career, you know, cop killer to uh, to the long shot, a Paul Bartel film, and now a, a regular on Law and Order's Vu, Ice T has had a fabled career. <laughs> Indeed he has. the long shot i knew i couldn't do a switcheroo with zach it was before i'd watched scenes from the class struggle 
I was like, I don't think Zach or I would ever want to discuss a slapstick comedy, especially one that we were just going to be uh, sighing about for most of our discussion. Mm-hmm. After he directed The Long Shot, he directed, like I said, two episodes of Amazing Stories. One I did not watch. It was a recreation of The Secret Cinema, which, if you remember, was Paul Bartel's first short film, his first thing ever, way back in the day. And I figured since I watched that one, the black and white, and I loved it, I didn't need to get the Amazing Stories nonsense version of it. But the other one I did watch called Gershwin's Trunk. And unfortunately, it falls into the exact same category as I would put every single episode of Amazing Stories I've ever seen. It is predictably boring. Have you ever seen a lot of Amazing Stories, Zach? I'm aware of it, but I've never seen it. I, I would describe it as like, you know... I don't know, the watered-down version of the Twilight Zone. You know, it's very much, like I said, predictable. And that's been my problem with all of them. You can kind of, once the scene is set and you know who the characters are and what the point of the episode, the the weirdness that's going on, you can just kind of see it coming from 20 miles away. I do have to mention, though, in this episode with Paul Bartel, it also has Bob Balaban, a very young Bob Balaban, but it also Hmm. has Carrie Fisher for, like, three scenes... And none other than Larry Gili's mother, Lainey Kazan. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Yes, but but it was kind of, you know, the two things before Scenes from the Class Struggle that I watched by Paul Bartel, I was not very excited about. We had the slapstick, a long shot, which was kind of meh. The, uh, the, you know, 22 minutes of just wasting my time on another episode of Amazing Stories. Paul Bartel's in it, though, and he's, he plays like a police detective that's going after Bob Balaban. He's, he's good at it because, you know, I got respect for Paul Bartel. But that brings us to the movie that he directed that came out in June of 1989 and supposedly made $2.2 million at the box office on a budget I could not find. Scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. And this was one, I think, that well before this series got started, when Zach and I sat down to talk about Paul Bartel and really kind of, you know, foster this idea of this series, this was a movie that both of us had heard of, but had never seen. And I think looking back, if I remember correctly, the reason we had both heard of this is because of the Simpsons parody episode. Yes, yes. And I did not go back and watch that episode of The Simpsons. I know it's somewhere in season seven, if I remember correctly. Um, But apparently, it's just the title that parodies this movie. The actual content of the the episode does not greatly reflect what goes on in this film. Did you do any looking into that at all? Uh, yeah, it's... It's just that. Like I remember, I remember the episode. Cause it's the one where Marge gets the dress, and she she gets up with the Chanel dress that's like on clearance for like ninety percent off. Oh, is that when she constantly she, reta- she, she she tailors it to like something different each time? So eventually, she I think she just mangles it after she's tailored it so many times. Yeah, and isn't she trying to get friends with the make friends with the like the posh women or something, the clique or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Okay. She wants to be part of the group, part of the club. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's not what this movie is about, right? <laughs> no, it is indeed, Rob. It is not. I think um, so. So, just a little more history before we get into the actual movie. Um, this was written by Paul Bartel and Bruce Wagner. So, it had uh, had Bartel, but not Richard Blackburn. Richard Blackburn was the other one that wrote Eating Raoul with him. So, this was mm-hmm. a different writing partner. I looked into Bruce Wagner. It was a lot of TV, a lot of stuff that I that didn't ring a bell to me. And kind of all in all, other than that, other than the, of course, the 
reviews, the um, the retrospectives on this, I couldn't find a lot of history about this movie other than the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, <laughs> which will have yeah. to be its own its own part yeah. of this discussion. <laughs> Yeah, that so, is very much a thing that you cannot you cannot discuss this film without bringing that up. Yep. So I think kind of to start, you know, the I remember back when we discussed Eating Raul, uh, I said something along the lines in that episode that we were discussing in Eating Raul. Uh, Paul Bartel's probably most, most well-known movie, that if you knew who Bartel was and you knew his kind of, you know, stance in the directorial and film industry you would think of eating raul first and i know that zach was like oh maybe scenes from the class struggle just based on the amount of research i was able to do i i'm kind of thinking again it is eating raul like this eating raul has seemed to overshadow this in the long run maybe when this came out this was big like i said 2.2 million at the box office um that that's not great but you know as far as paul bartell's uh, uber goes that's that's pretty good Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I'm kind of thinking, you know, eating Raul is that high point for what he's well known for. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, this, okay. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, ugh, this, this is a weird one. Cause like, this is one of those movies I think I've been aware of the title and like yes. Rob said, yes, very much by the Simpsons parody, but I like, I was always aware of this though, but like, when I went to go do research on it, I was absolutely flabbergasted. That there was absolutely no info on it whatsoever. Yeah, it's There's shocking. A, and then I looked up because I know I sent Rob a link that apparently sometime last year it was going to be released on Blu-ray, and I'm like, and it, it didn't. It didn't get released, and it's like, oh, okay, that's no big deal. Like things like this come and go. And then I looked and like, oh, it never even got a U.S. DVD release. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, I, that's I, I crazy. Saw that. I saw you when you sent me that link on Facebook. I read it, and it was like. Two more Paul Bartel movies like are gonna be slated for Blu-ray release, and it's scenes from the class struggle and not for publication. And I was like, oh, not for publication. And then I look at the date, and it's like you know eight months <laughs> May, ago or something. Yeah, it's like May of 2019. Yeah, <laughs> my, my excitement immediately deflated. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's the thing about this movie. The only thing I could think of because there's there's two reasons why there's no information on this movie. The first could be I, well. The first and foremost is obviously what happened to uh, Rebecca Shaver. Like that's just mm-hmm. like that's that's clearly what happened. It, it tarnished the film. And the second I'm thinking is that the production company Cinecom Pictures went bankrupt shortly after this. Oh, okay. And I think that's probably the reason why. A, it's a movie that probably nobody cared about because there probably was a stigma surrounding it, and you have a company that owned it went bankrupt. So no one's going to untangle like any sort of bankruptcy. People get pieces of what's left over. So no mm-hmm. one's going to try to untangle that for a movie that nobody really has any sort of nostalgic feeling for. Yeah, and and that's kind of I think a good transition into you know my thoughts on this movie. I know last week we had a low point with Paul Bartel with the the boring aspect of Lust in the Dust, the grasping at straws. And even though I know I enjoyed Lust in the Dust a little more than you did, Zach. This is a, a rise from Lust in the Dust, oh, yeah. but I would say it's still a low point in the series of the films we're discussing by Paul Bartel, because I was very kind of upset as it went through this film that I realized that you can distill the entire concept of this movie into one sentence. People have sex. Yeah, like, 
this this movie's okay. I disagree with you. I think this is a lot better than it. Okay, it's that's the thing. This is a very competently made movie. Oh, it's ab- very absolutely. slick. It's very shiny, and it does what it, it does what its job is. Like you could tell, mm-hmm. like because as I was watching this, and this was kind of a complaint I had going back to uh, Lust in the Dust, and or maybe I didn't even voice it then. Was that it feels like Paul Bartel said everything he wanted to say was eating Raul. Uh, yes there's a part of me that feels like he said everything he like it's kind of like i mean oh god i think it was blank check with griffin and david they were talking about in their tim burton series and i forget what movie of tim burton's they were talking about and they're like after a while you have to wonder does the filmmaker just say everything they want to say mm-hmm. okay they really don't have any sort of Message anymore like they, they've Exercised their demons and I don't mean That like in the sense of, like it's a problem for them But like they've said they've said their Peace And that's it it's just now just a matter of just Earning that paycheck money and Interesting I think part I think Class struggle is Definitely more in the, the Quote unquote canon of Paul Bartel because it shares a lot of the same Themes that you would see in private parts Eating Raul and well, Death Race, Death Race is its own thing. But even then, there's an argument to be made there. But for the most part, private parts and eating Raul. I think it fits more in though in that sort of line. Obviously, I haven't seen the other ones that Rob has, so I can't comment on those directly. But there was that issue of just I, again. I think this is a theme for at least what the the middle and bookends of the Paul Bartel series and its sexual morality. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. think about it. Private Parts is made in the early 70s And this is made At the end of the 80s The end of that like like Oh god because what the age crisis now Was like in I don't want to say in full effect But that was a thing that people had to worry about Whereas whereas with Eating Raul That wasn't really a thing yet It was still kind of the aftermath of the 70s And I think you could like Obviously we'll get more into this toward the end of this episode But I think there's a very interesting Case to be made that you can make a fantastic triple feature of private parts, eating Raul, and class struggle as sexual morality in America. Or sexual morality, maybe not in America, but sexual morality over the course of the 70s and 80s. I, I would agree with you there for sure. And I think just to you know go back to my point of saying this movie is just saying people have sex while I'm distilling it, you know, or, you know, distilling it, absolutely – um, that's not to say that I disliked it. It definitely wasn't offensive to me, but I agree with you in the sense that has he said everything about this topic that he wanted with eating Raul? Because to me, this movie was just eating Raul, you know, minus the cannibalism part, just with more characters and more men and women and men and men to interact with each other. It's more melodramatic than eating Raul. Eating oh, Raul absolutely. Eating Raul is unique because there really wasn't anything like that. And if there mm-hmm. was at the time, because obviously I haven't seen everything from that era, if there was something like eating Raul, it was at least it was novel still then. Where this is much more like it's it's a riff on like almost like your your TV shows from like oh I mean I'm not sure if it was out yet like your things like Dynasty and the fact that like you have the the opulence of the uh, oh god what, what was that great intro used to have of the 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 rich and fabulous the the guy who does the voice he cuts. That sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Robin Leach, yep. Thank you, thank you. And it's sort of a parody of that. And like, oh, just the, the 
the screwing around of everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of stuff that, like, I in the eight, late 80s, that would have made sense. Like, in sure. the time it came out. Like, no, by today's standards, this is this is quite tame. And, well, well, maybe, not tame, it's, it's about par. Like, I would imagine a lot of things in this, too, were probably very risque at the time, especially in the late 80s. The idea of two men having a sexual affair at the end because of a, like, that's, that's, I don't even want to say, that would be, that's not progressive by today's standards, mm-hmm. but, like, ten years ago, that would have been progressive in a movie. And Paul Bartel was doing this in the late 80s. Sure. And I think on that point, this is something I, I wasn't going to bring up till our questions at the end, but I think it leads into exactly what you're saying. When I finished this movie, my kind of summation of it was, of course, yeah, okay, people have sex, you know, maybe that's that's just the, the, the human level of it. But after this movie was over, I started to think, well, it's like, man, this was kind of ahead of its time in the sense of today... In modern reality television, this is what any producer would want. They would want to grab a bunch of people, throw them in a house, and they all fuck each other. And they all cause drama and, you know, all that stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, that that's what people want out of their, I don't know, big brothers or what are, there's shows now that are called Temptation Island, right, that are just literally sure. that to the maximum. And The yeah. Bachelor, even. And so that... That was kind of the secondary aspect that blew me away about this movie, where I was like, well, Paul Bartel wrote and directed this thing that is basically what, you know, mid-2000s to even current day drama reality TV show people wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it was ahead of, much like we've said before, Paul Bartel, he's the most influential filmmaker you've never heard of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think there's an element to that with this. Like, there, it really is one of those movies that, like it was like I can't I don't know if it's kind of like what you're we talking about in previous episodes is that was he that far ahead or was Paul Bartel just doing his own thing? That's a that's a good question. And um, you know, I think I think they do kind of go hand in hand because if if he was doing his own thing and he didn't know it, he still could have been ahead of his time. Um, but you know, that's that's the bummer, Zach. We gotta wait for Seance Modities this Sunday to to get him on the uh, on the Ouija board. Ouija board. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about this is that like it does. It, the only thing I didn't like about this movie was the very end, where you have the Paul Bartel character, Doctor Weber's name, Doctor Mo, and Mo Vandekamp. Yes, Mo Vandekamp is that he kind of I don't want to say solicits, but he offers Sandra the position, and there is a sexual undertone to it. Yeah, that I'm with you. I didn't me like off. that because I did when, not like that. When they first start talking to each other at the end by the pool, he's like, why don't you come with me? Get away from all of this. We'll go to the Africa or wherever they're going to uh, work on the hunger project. And she's like, yeah, you know, I have to get permission from my mom. And he's like, oh, that she won't mind. It's like, yeah, this will be a great opportunity. Like, I'll see the world. I'll learn something. And then he goes, we'll also have to share a tent together. And I'm like, no, I'm like, why? No, like, take yeah. out that one line, you know? Yep. Yep, that's and that's the whole thing. That in all these movies, obviously, Paul Bartel really doesn't have any sort of physical presence or narrative purpose in uh, private parts, but especially in uh, Eating Raoul, where he is very much a like a what's the word? I don't want to say abstains. He's just a non-sexual creature in a very yeah, sexual we, movie. Yeah, we called him sexually conservative back in the episode, I believe. Yeah, something like that, and that's where I kind of find it odd because he's he's the only character in this for the most part that's not sexual in any sort of way until that one line of dialogue, and it's like, yeah. like where did that come from? Like, why why did he feel, especially coming from him, 
Like mm-hmm. he's like like maybe like if it was another actor or anything else, you'd be like, okay, he lost control. But the fact that like it's something that he could have chosen not to say. And as you like with anything, like if you don't film it, you don't have to worry about somebody putting it in or yeah. leaving it. In. I don't, oh, man, I don't I don't know. Maybe because at the same time, I think about you know if we watch all these other characters and you know Xandra included, you know everybody but Doctor Mo Van de Camp, Paul Bartel's character. They're all, you know, sex. They have problems with their sexual morality type of thing. They can say they can be two faced. I guess is another another way to put it. Maybe he's trying to say that, you know, even this guy who didn't come off as two faced is still two faced. It's a very cynical thing that I don't think this movie is going for as a whole. But it, yeah, I, I'm with you. That one, that scene definitely was like, wait, what? Like this is it's what I jarring. Yeah. It's jarring. That's the problem. And Adam maybe the that's... dog's death scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Bojangles! I was um, very upset by that, Bojangles. <laughs> I, thought, I, I was amused by that. Like, I, I not to say, like, again, because we see, because Bojangles is fine. Like, we see him and we see, um, oh God, what's his name? Well, he's in the oh, afterlife. You mean? Yeah, yeah. We see Sid, Sidney Lifkins like holding him. And it's like, oh, okay, like, yeah. like Bojangles is fine. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's that's one thing. If you're gonna kill a dog, you gotta bring the dog back in some capacity almost immediately. Oh, and, sure, yeah. And that's, that's, that's a great a cl- line from the from the ghost when he shows up in that first scene. And the and the wife is our Jacqueline Bassett is like, what are you like? You're dead. What are you doing here? And he's like, no, we're still connected. You'll love it in hell. I've already picked out a house just like this one. <laughs> and that those are the parts of the movie where I was like, I get it. I get that like kind of black comedy they're going for. That's not you know necessarily sexual, but more relationship based. Sure. And no, this is like I guess we should after what a half an hour maybe explain the plot of this movie other than everybody has sex. But it's 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 not. I don't want to say it's a bunch of vignettes just strung together because it's 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 more than that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, it's you have you're bouncing off all these different characters, and you have to really pay close attention to like who's everybody's relationship to each other. It's like, oh, okay, Mary Warnov is so and so's boss, and then you have Jacqueline Bissett is Juan's boss. And then Raul, you have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good old Raul. And then you have the Zandra, and she's. She's Claire's daughter, but then you also have you lose all track. And Peter is Mary Warnov's brother. It's like, oh my god! And that's one thing where it's like, I, a couple of times watching, you had to kind of like pause and be like, okay, this person. You kind of need like a flow chart to be like, okay, this person is connected to this person, and this is their connection. Because a couple of times, I'm like, wait, who's who's Juan supposed to be going after? Who who's Robert Beltran supposed to be going after? Like you lose track because yep. there's not a lot of. Expedition because even early in the film we see We see Frank and he's Getting a blowjob from a blonde woman And you're like oh is that Claire And it's like oh no it's Not or or is it and then you have To kind of just figure I guess not It is yeah it's a very tangled Set of relationships For sure and and I think That goes to some of the stuff I really liked about the movie is yeah I agree With you that knowing kind of who's Individual people who they were related to, who they were working for, who was trying to bang who, that type of thing. That needed some parsing through. But the thing that I really enjoyed about this movie was that once you kind of had that established and once you could start to get a foothold in there, the way that our characters were interacting and kind of not not like, you know, pushing each other over, maybe not like cheating on each other. I, I, I can't think of the right word, but one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Wallace Shawn goes back to Mary Warrenov and he's like, Lisbeth, take me back, take me back. And he goes on this whole, mo- whole monologue about, we think he's talking about his testicles. 
I'm so ashamed. I know what I have to do now. What do you mean? I'm going to check into the Moete Shondal suite of the Wilshire with all the surgical equipment I need, and I'll simply remove them. Remove them? I heard about a man who took out his own appendix, so why not just hack them off at the root? Your balls? <laughs> oh, my balls! I have no balls, Liz. All I have is a set of fat, petty dictators sewn up in cheap leather. Howard, I am really worried about you. A couple of greedy monsters dangling in a smarmy woman's purse. The kind you buy at Q-Mart. Monogamy was my kingdom. And they have exiled me. Oh, poor baby. Would you really do that for me? Give us another chance, Liz. Don't let it die. Not without a fight. And then she's and then she's like, okay, like be at my room by midnight. And then the next scene is her talking to Raul, and Raul's saying the same monologue. And you start to realize that it's like, oh, they're stealing from Ed Begley Jr.'s play <laughs> that we've both had. And it's Juan, why aren't you fixing the lights? Mrs. Sarabian, life is a bullfight. Yes, and Right now, it's a very dark bullfight. So why don't you go back to the house and... I offer you the balls of the great sad bull. My cojones. Your what? My dictations. They got leather on them. With this leather, it's cheap. Juan, stop. Without your love, Mrs. Hepburn's Arabian, I'm just a sleazy woman's handbag. My monsters have greed in their... Uh, kingdom. Their kingdom of... Uh, uh, Monogamy. Monotony, yes. Juan, that's very sweet. But you just leave those dictations dangling in that handbag where they belong. Now, go and get a tray of pigs in the blanket and circulate. And it's kind of like, you know, one of those things that I love in movies that the movie never told us this, but we're able to slowly piece it together. And my mm. note was like, oh, like the web gets more tangled as we go on, just with crumbs of interactions. And it's a great kind of, you know, show, not tell. Or maybe tell subtly without telling type of thing. Yeah. I love that aspect of it. That's when the movie really picked up for me because I was like, oh, they're all trying to one-up each other. They're all trying to step over each other. But by using each other's experiences and relationships and, and oh, it's that, that's some, of, some of that stuff was really, really great. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that you really, it's really cool. But, like, it's few and far in between after a while. Yeah, yeah, because it has to, you know, tie down to, like, definitely before that, because I think that's the scene I just referenced is probably halfway, if not a little later through the movie. Everything before that is the set dressing of introducing characters and things like that. And then kind of everything after the, the wake for the husband and the dog, that's when the climax happens and they have that brunch and they're all just yelling at each other, you know? Yeah, then you have the immediate aftermath of all these, uh... well, that's the, that's the thing that was like, who is the protagonist of this movie? Is it Juan? Because he's a good question. Because we, he's the only character we see have really any sort of genuine adversity. Because he has at least a dilemma, and yep. we're rooting for his, him. He needs his five grand. Yep. Yes. Whereas Claire is just like she has her own problems. Well, yeah. Her, her only. But we can't is, identify with her though. Yeah, her problems are her husband just died, and she's trying to make a comeback on TV. You know, that's mm -hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. And that's where it's like, I don't want to say that's petty, though, but it's not the same sort of plight that we can get behind with uh, Juan. Definitely. Yeah, Juan, Juan's the one I think we focus on the most and how other characters, when they interact with Juan, 
actually move the plot somewhere. You know, it's not just like the um, like I'm thinking about Ed, Ed Begley Jr. and Claire Jacqueline Bissett. He's like, I'm in love with you, Claire, and she's like, I don't know what I want to do, and he's like, Come on, let's do it. Let's have sex, and it's like, there's nothing here. There's no meat to this relationship. It's just yeah. carnal. And I think that's, but that's the weird thing about this movie. Is that, like by the end of the movie, everybody more or less is fulfilled with themselves. Like everybody mm. has scratched that itch and they go in their separate directions. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody seems to be satisfied, yet not, yet uh, they're satisfied in the narrative of the film, but it's not fulfilling other than Elizabeth and Juan's relationship on, on mm. a, for the audience. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Uh, the second movie in this series. Where Robert Beltran and Mary Warnov have sex together. <laughs> yes. Which makes you wonder how much of that was Paul Bartel just enjoying it. Hey, as nothing we, wrong with that. As we've learned from other filmmakers, if you see a reoccurring pattern, chances are it's there because somebody likes it. <laughs> hey, you mentioned Tim Burton early in this episode. What, anybody with Helena Bonham Carter? <laughs> there you go. Scratching that itch for him. Oh, God. <laughs> No, I, I think I think um, we kind of went off the rails, but uh, sh- yes, you're right. Should should we give a plot synopsis for this I, film? <laughs> I like the plot. Have you read the plot description on Wikipedia? I may. I'm sure I did. It didn't stick out to me though. Um, it it comes across as a schizophrenic wrote it. Ooh, I like those. All right, this is the uh, the plot on Wikipedia. It's it's like oh god, one two. Three, four, five sentences long. Let that sink in, Rob. Five sentences. <laughs> for for probably Paul Bartel's longest movie, right? Yeah. This All is right. an hour 40, and I think everything else we did was capped at like an hour 32. <laughs> uh-huh. All right, this is the plot for Wikipedia. Claire Lipkin is a recent widow dealing with everything from house guest Elizabeth to Elizabeth's libidinous... Oh, God. Okay, try Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, li- libidinous, right? Yeah, libidinous. having having a high libido. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I know what the word means. I can't pronounce it. Okay, Elizabeth oh. <laughs> to Elizabeth's impetus. Oh my God, you know what you get, folks. X Howard to family problems. She also is being haunted by the ghost of her recently deceased husband, Sydney. Elizabeth's houseboy Juan and Claire's chauffeur Frank make a bet on which of them can seduce the other's employer first. The bisexual Frank puts up cash for the wager, but if he wins, he wants Juan to sleep with him. Juan wins the bet but claims that he lost and has sex with Frank anyway. Oh, well, they give that away. (laughs) Yes, yes, very much so. Oh, I I just pulled it up. I like that in this whole plot synopsis, you can click on bisexual to learn more. (laughs) <laughs> That's the one thing you can click just, on Just in case you made it this far in your life And you had no idea what that was But somehow you stumbled into the filmography Of Paul Bartel <laughs> Yes Wow so yeah that's a that is a Distillation for sure of this film and It pretty much ignores Like entire Plot threads Yeah there's no mention of um, The brother Ed Begley Jr And his, and his playwriting There's no mention of Tobel Nope. The uh, the porn star or ex porn star or porn star on hiatus. Nobody really knows. <laughs> no mention of Paul Bartel. No mention of Zandra. Mm-hmm. No mention of Willie. Wow. Yep. 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 Nope. I guess yeah. Howard's mentioned, but that's essentially it. Just that he's, but the, he, they, that's the one they describe as libidinous, mm-hmm. and he's not that libidinous. He just wants 
Mary Warrenov back, you know? Yep. He's the mm-hmm. he's the least sexually charged of everybody. Yeah, I, I that's uh, I guess there's some weird. Okay, I'm going to go weird... I'm going to edit Wikipedia. I'm going to replace this all five sentences with people have sex. Sex. <laughs> Distill even further down, Rob. Condense, <laughs> condense. But like there's things in this movie though that kind of like don't need to be there. But like I guess they're there cuz you have like the entire subplot of like Willie and the fact that like I guess he's Interested in sex, but he doesn't know what to do with it. Then he's also he's also what in remission from a terminal disease, right? Yes, and he has cane. He walks around not cane with a crutch. Yeah, yeah. And then you have Zandra who shows up, and like halfway through, actually, we see her pretty early on. She disappears for most of the film. Shows up toward like the last third, and is reintroduced as a a sexual creature. Mm -hmm. And then she sleeps with Frank. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And it's really not touched upon ever again. Yeah, really until that brunch scene when she has one line about it, you know? Yep. And then, like, it's not touched upon. But then you have Willie tries to get, what, a blowjob from Tobel and it doesn't work? Yeah, they try and do something sexual, but he can't get it up. Um, And But she says, with what you've been through, you know, that doesn't make you a man. You're more of a man than anybody is. You're... You got more dick than your dad does when he's talking about when she's talking about Wallace Shawn. The mo- the movie is funny. I will give it that. <laughs> no, it's a very entertaining film. It's just it's it's jarring at times. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like it's not boring, but it feels all over the place. You know that I think that that's once again you're saying it in a way that I don't really think of, but it's why this made me think of. You know, a a scripted reality show, because in reality shows, you know, they're putting a lot of stuff in there that doesn't make sense just to pad time, and they're trying to get those you know certain characters have drama with each other, and when it happens, you just kind of have to watch it and say, oh, this is because they're people, and this is how these people are interacting. Once again, this is like like Paul Bartel did something. Whether or not I love it as much as I love his other movies, he did something that in you know. 15 years after this movie was released, people will watch in droves, you know? It's it's kind of almost like, especially with the bet with the with the um, driver and the butler and the two rich housewives, this is like an early version of, you know, the the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Yeah, it's uh it's it's obviously much more hyper realized and and I don't want to say sexually charged. Yeah, it's more sexually charged. I don't charged. know. You ever seen those shows, Zach? Because I haven't. I don't know. Neither have I. I know my but, mom watches them, and she's always like she she says it with like a very downward tone, like it's a truly guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah, like I, that's the thing though. That this is another film that probably was too ahead of its time because even like the very end, we have Willie sleeping with the maid, and the oh, thing about yeah. and I'm not sure, Rob, have you picked up and it's something I know that you watch the maid character being parodied. It's a really it's funny. As I was watching it, I'm like, where have I seen this character before? Do you remember where you've seen the maid character before? Jeez, not weird. not not even in live action. It's an it's a different it's it's an animation. The maid character is parodied. So the, the maid in this movie is Rosa. Are you thinking of the maid from Family Guy? No, but close. Because it, it is it, close. I, the maid from Family Guy is a little less is a little more terse. This maid has like no, but I, I get what you're getting at, though. But uh, okay. the maid from whatever her name is from Family Guy is, is meant to be more just a stereotypical uh, 
uh, oh god, uh, undocumented, illegal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Lemon pledge. Lemon pledge. Lemon. Yeah. Th- th- yeah. That made that made is very. I can't remember her name either. But that made is very terse. Where Rosa in this movie is trying to, you know, espouse words of wisdom every time she's on screen. It seems. You loved him too, didn't you, Rosa? Bojangles in arms of Quetzalcoatl now. He bark. Bojangle vomit diamonds. Kukulkan makes big, hot, beautiful turds. Together, they fight the jaguar, the monkey, and the evil cheese. Okay, this is where she's from, or she's been pulled from. Okay, okay, I'm ready. For. Rick and Morty, remember when Jerry goes to the Titanic exhibit, and Beth just, like, walks away, and Jerry hangs out with the the maid character? Oh, it's coming back to me. I haven't seen that episode in a long time. It's that, obviously, the there's a part of that episode that's not based on class struggle. Sure, but sure. The, the, the design of that character, and how she talks, and how she's dressed... Very similar. Like, if you watch that Rick and Morty episode, you'd be like, oh, the mm. physical represent- representation of the character is pulled directly from Class Struggle. Okay. I-, I might have to go back and check that out. Even though I uh, I don't really like watching reruns of Rick and Morty, I haven't seen that one in a while. I don't remember it. So I'll check it out. Yep. That's pretty much yeah. That's I-, I thought that was surprising. That that's where, of all things, to see this movie and something else was that. Yeah, um, I didn't write down any of the clips from the maid, but there were some of the scenes that she had where, like I said, she's trying to give words of wisdom to people, and I was just like, like laughing out loud because it makes no sense, you know? It's it's uh like waxing poetic for in in a heavy Hispanic accent that I could barely understand, and it's just like she's talking about what the dog at the wake mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and it's almost almost uh, has this sense of premonition since the dog shows up later with the dead husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a thing. This movie's all over the place. Like it really is. Like it's, I I wouldn't even know how to describe this. I guess the what a con, what they call the dramedy. I guess I think, be, I think it's a. I think I read that it, they they called it a dramatic black comedy. Dramatic black comedy. Okay. Yeah, and and more. I would say more of a you know maybe a little more romantic black comedy because mm-hmm. of of the the sexually charged aspects of it for sure. Oh sure. Yeah, because that's I, I this would be one of those movies I don't know how you explain it to somebody. People have ju- sex. <laughs> <laughs> that's and they go, okay, that 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 tells me that you know there's still like eight thousand billion movies out there. You know, you really haven't narrowed it down. <laughs> and the thing about the sex is like there's not even a sex scene in this. Like, yes, you see people in in stripped down and things like that, and there's obviously hinted upon, but mm, I would say I, the only one is we get to see like one and a half thrusts of Tobel and Frank having sex when Ed Begley Jr. is trying to come into the room. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. But that, but that's still that's like nothing. You know, that's that's like I said, one and a half thrusts. It's done like the damn scene in um, Death Kiss where they show only the top half of the woman or the back half of the man. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just remembered uh, Key and Peele with the thrust rule. You know, me allowed oh, yep. three pumps. Three pumps. <laughs> yeah. Hey kids, Rob was going to put a clip from the Key and Peel Three Pumps sketch right here, but he felt it would be better to acknowledge the fact that unsolicited, Zach 
made a reference to the sketch comedy Fort Month. That is all. Um, that's that's what makes this movie so weird to talk about, in my opinion, is that it's just I, I don't sense a purpose to this film's existence. It's very similar to Lust in the Dust that way. Mm, I think that's that's exactly why it made me think of a reality TV show. You're just watching drama. There's nothing to be really gained from it after the fact other than, you know, you just spend some time watching people interact. And and as we've learned from the success of reality TV shows, people love that stuff. Yeah, but this is, like, I don't know how people would have responded to this back then because i would imagine this was kind of beyond the pale back in the late 80s sure yeah that that that's like like we said it kind of maybe it's ahead of its time back in the day this would be kind of like a maybe like a one shot like somebody sees it they might laugh they might you know be like oh you know this this is crazy that was those characters did this crazy thing and then they forget about it almost i i could see this being a very big like blockbuster rental house movie Mm, I can't okay. see people paying to see this in the theater, but this is one of those ones where you rent it on a Friday night and people like, like I don't know, get a pizza and a bottle of wine, and it'd be a fun time for, for a group sure. of people. Because it's very pulpy, it's very digestible. Like anybody over the age of like, I think fourteen can appreciate this. There's nothing like whereas like obviously private parts is for a very specific audience. <laughs> yes, eating route wool can get pretty esoteric at times if it's to the unengaged sure sure this i could see like this is this is a crowd pleaser like this is one of those movies that if this was released maybe back in like 2000 uh, 2009 okay i could have seen this take it off i kind of like a a slightly raunchier couples retreat like kind of like a mix oh. between couples retreat and forgetting Sarah Marshall. See, now, like, now you're making me think that the couples retreat is a good comparison, a more modern day comparison of this for sure. And that's an interesting take. Maybe not even if this was released later on, but if this to some sense got a, a reboot or an upgrade for the modern day, people would absolutely latch onto this. Yeah, except for there's a very specific reason why this has never gotten the time of day since uh, July of 1989. There's a a very specific reason why we cannot, that no one's ever, like, I should say, like, everybody knows, like, every murder. Yes, murder, blatant murder of a young actress. And, like, even doing research for this, like, I type the name of this movie into, like, Spotify, like, oh, there's got to be like a couple podcasts on this on Spotify, and all I got was like three or four different podcasts doing episodes on the Springfield episode, Springfield Simpsons episode, mm-hmm. and I'm like, huh, okay, like that's that's fair. Spotify really isn't a podcasting platform. That's what Apple Podcasts is for. And huh. I typed it in there, and there was maybe I typed it in wrong, maybe I misspelled it, maybe I had one letter off, and I just threw the search results out the window. It is very long, the title of this movie, <laughs> but. I couldn't find anything on Apple Podcasts. You go on to YouTube. Like, the whole movie's on YouTube for free and in better quality than what Rob and I watched. And, yeah, Rob, the the movie's on YouTube. Once again, in better quality. Well, no, actually, no. The the one I found that night when you wanted better quality was the YouTube rip, yes. Oh, okay. We did watch the on par. And uh, to be honest, I did. I I ended up watching the other version. Oh, because it had better audio quality. Yes. And so there's a trade-off with these old movies. Rob, Rob couldn't see 15% of the screen, but he could hear it better. 
Yep, I still got the nudity when it came on, so we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But uh, no, I think this movie is a uh, very much something that was it was discarded within, within 30 days of its release. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And it never showed up, I think, because the, the fact that the company that owns it probably got split so many different ways. It never had a chance to show up on DVD. It never had a chance to show up on, on television. And so it never uh, garnered an audience. It was the definition of an underground film. You had to really seek it out. It was not a movie that you could stumble into. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that you said you know if it came around later, it might have had a, a better audience type of thing for sure. Yeah, and that's the or thing more, is that more receptive audience, I should say. Sure, it's uh, it's this is a weird one. Like there's, there, of course, there's other movies where a a a talent involved with the film was killed, but I think it's the fact that this is so directly tied to the actions that the actor plays in the film that it inherently taints the film. Because even like you go on IMDb and there's only one piece of trivia, <laughs> and yep. it's that. And I it's think like, it's on Wikipedia even as well. They talk about this in like the, yeah. uh, the in like the the like the intro, whatever the head, like before it even gets the contents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it says it's like this movie, blah 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 blah, has these actors. Last sentence of the intro: Actress Rebecca Schaefer was murdered shortly after the movie's release, and that's it. And it's like, h- how does that not grab your attention? <laughs> yeah, and that's one thing I think probably turns a lot of people off about this movie is we live in a day. I'm sorry, we live in a day and age now where you can't just simply delve into something. You have to know a little bit about it before you, you wade in. And so mm-hmm. you see that and you're like, ugh. And especially, again, she was so young. It was such a senseless crime. And it's like, it's tied to, directly to the plot of the film. Yeah. It's like, yep. ugh. And to a lot of people, that's icky. And, and that's why it's like, why are we going to spend time and effort with lawyers to untangle rights to something that really, especially in Hollywood, Nobody wants to touch. Like it's, yeah. in a way, in a way, I'd say it's radioactive. That it's just like nope. And the fact that uh, even the the Blu-ray didn't come out, it's it's not on anybody's priority list right now. I yeah, I I don't I don't disagree. And I guess you know, there's definitely more of this movie. Maybe scenes I want to talk about. But do, do we have to get out of the way? We have to talk about some murder, right? Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I I sent earlier today I sent Rob like twenty twenty ABC did a whole like ninety minute special on what oh, happened. Oh, Rebecca so Shaver. I have to I have to give some details of this because I didn't tell Zach before we recorded. But um, you know, I I watched this movie uh, two or three days ago in preparation for this recording, and of course after I've watched it and I started doing my research, boom, this pops up. Like I said, how does that not grab your attention? And I'm like, I'm reading about it, and it's like, okay, Rebecca Schaefer was murdered by an obsessed fan, like, about a month after this movie was released. If not a month, it was a little less or a little more. And I'm like, okay, and I start reading about it, and in my research, this is the thing that's, like, garnering most of my attention, because there's so little else to find about this. This morning, I'm laying in bed, and I hear my phone vibrate, and I look at my phone, and it's a good old Facebook message from Zach. And before I even click on the the actual link that he send me he sends me i can see the the words in the link of where he's trying to put me to and i'm pretty sure it says something like i can pull it up yes i see in here like oh a bunch of numbers all the slashes url stuff and then your biggest fan 
And I knew at that moment before I clicked on it that it was going to be about Rebecca Schaefer being murdered. I click on it and I go, yep, I see it's what, 80 minutes long? And I go, damn, I don't think I'm going to have time to watch this, Zach. And he goes, I'm going to (laughs) try. And I, I still... Maybe after we talk about it, no, it's not, it's 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 not it's not very it's, interesting. Oh, it's okay. it's about oh god, thirty minutes of it is all about her career up until that point, mm, which I get. Okay, sure. And the then history, it, yeah, yeah, and then it spends about I'd say twenty five thirty minutes. And a lot of it's just re- it's that true crime thing. We just repeat the same thing over and over again because obviously it was it was produced for a television broadcast in a two hour time spot. Mm-hmm. And it spends a lot of that time just going over the same things over and over and over and over again. And then the last 20 minutes is not even about her. It's about other cases of where celebrities were stalked and attacked or oh, killed. Okay. Like, I, I, they, they spend a nice amount of time. I forget. There was somebody, I think it was on America's Got Talent or Dancing with the Stars, where somebody actually tried to leap out on stage and like grab a woman. I forget what her name was. Mm-hmm. And they talk about that. They talk about what happened to a Christina... Christina Grimmie, the uh, the the oh guy, I think she was what a teenager, and she was killed in the Orlando nightclub. And they talk about that, and like it, there was still about I think ten minutes to go, and I just turned it off because clearly it wasn't about it wasn't about her anymore, uh, Schaefer. It was just uh, it was about gotcha. everything else. Um, and pretty much it just it further fleshes out what you think about the fact that the guy who killed her was really like he 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 was he was a psychotic. And what mm-hmm. happened? And some of the thing that was interesting, though, that apparently Christian Schaefer was, oh, I'm sorry, Rebecca Schaefer, excuse me, and she was writing like she get fan mail because she was on a TV show prior to this, and she would actually write back to these people and be like, oh, like, oh, I love you, like all your problems, like, like, like actually, like do like give them like personal attention in these letters that she'd write back, and mm-hmm. apparently people that were surrounding her like don't do that, like it is a it is a one way street. Mm-hmm. You like sign your name to the picture, and that's it. That is the extent of your connection oh, with God. these people. Oh God, Zach, the berries are coming for us. The berries yeah. are coming for us. We gave them too much attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we made uh, him watch the book of Hank. Oh God, we're doomed. <laughs> yes, we get shot uh, outside of our apartments. But like one thing that was a little bit interesting, and again, it, it fleshes out the story of her murder. That how this guy who shot her got her address because apparently he even flew out to like the studio lot before. I think before Class Struggle came out, and he wanted to talk to her. He brought like flowers and stuff, and then he was stopped at the studio gate. He was turned away, and then he came back. I think a couple of days later, and he was turned away again. And then he eventually he hired. I think it was after Class Struggle, he became like I said so infuriated that she had a sex scene. And it's not even a, it's not even a graphic sex scene. It's She's quite, in bed with another man. Yep. Yes, and that's all it took. And he apparently went and got he went and got a gun. He couldn't get a gun, so his brother bought him a gun. And then I think he went and hired a private detective to find out where she lived. Mm-hmm. And apparently the private detective found her address by going to, to the Department of Motor Vehicle and just asking for her address. Easy peasy. <laughs> Easy peasy. And then they explained that the reason why she answered the door was she was auditioning for the role of Michael Corleone's daughter in The Godfather Part 3. And she was expecting, I think, the script. And so that's what happened, apparently. She was expecting the script in the intercom to whatever apartment building she was living in wasn't working. So every time she got a notification or a buzz or a doorbell ring, she'd go down. 
Yep. And she went down and saw him the first time, kind of interacted with him pleasantly, and then walked away. And then he, I guess, didn't have the nerve to shoot her. And then he went back a second time, and that's when he did it. And a pa- oh, this other thing too is that when they obviously they found him pretty immediately. I think they eventually found him like wandering the highway, like in Arizona somewhere. He was like he was wandering in between traffic. And that, that's what I read that they he was picked up by um, you know police officers. Because he was running through traffic on an interstate. Yep. yep like not not like that that is that is conspicuous as fuck. <laughs> yeah, you say. Well no, the guy was clearly insane. Yeah. And yeah. and and oddly not oddly enough, I guess it should make sense considering all the players, is that the prosecutor that would eventually uh, prosecute him was mm. Marsha Clark. This is my favorite part of the story where I was like, holy shit, look at that connection. Yep. Yeah, who who would have thought? And yeah, and obviously they interview Marsha Clark, and she's she's very much uh, talking about this. And again, she she did her job. She made sure her big thing was that obviously the defense was trying to get an insanity plea. And when they were interviewing him, and I guess his confession or whatever, her, her the, what sealed the deal to get him thrown away, and they locked. I'm sorry, they threw the key away for him. Was he in his confession? He describes how he shot her. And he has a he does a finger gun motion, and when he does that, he pulls it from behind his back, showing that he was concealing it, which shows intent. Mm. It wasn't just the deranged thing, and that was clever. I thought that was like okay, that was neat. That's something you wouldn't think of, and yeah, and that's kind of like I said, that's only about a half an hour of this. Okay, okay. The pro not the problems that the, the first twenty five minutes is her backstory, which is fine. Like you got to again, if you're gonna do a eighty minutes on her, you got to explain who she is. Um, but v- very little time devoted to the film itself. Ah, gotcha. Okay, bummer, bummer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That this, like I said, it caught my attention, and I just kept reading about it, and I was kind of blown away with all these connections that we got. Um, you know, I think I think uh, I found a lot of the same stuff you did, whether you got it from that documentary or otherwise. I think I'm sure they're all bleeding over. You know, the articles I'm reading in that uh, documentary or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I was definitely intrigued by, you know, it, this was the, the kind of thing that got the ball rolling for, uh, what I found was called the driver's privacy protection act where we're mm-hmm. so stupid as humans, we needed someone to die so that a law would be passed that the DMV or a government agency can't release your private address. What a novel fucking concept that must've been in the early nineties. But also, you know, and this was some of the first anti-stalking laws came out of this case as well. And I'm sure some of the others that were mentioned in that documentary, other celebrities being, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, harmed in this way, whether it be actually shot or whether it actually be, you know, stalked and causing the shootings of other people. You know, I I couldn't when I was reading all this, I I couldn't not think about John Hinckley Jr. and Mm -hmm. that connection to celebrities and stuff like that. And this was the thing that I'm kind of blown away by that I, I never would have guessed. If you asked me back in the private parts episode, I wouldn't have thought we'd been talking about something much more pervasive through culture and law than just these movies in the Paul Bartel series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this film definitely has a, a legacy. It's just not a very good one. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. One that's very much divorced from the actual overall movie outside of one scene. Mm, yeah. Oh, that that's the thing that kind of blew me away, because when I first read that in one of the sources I found, I was like, really? 
I was like, this is this is what happened. Like he he's he calls her what a Hollywood whore because she's in bed with some character in a movie. I'm like, that's it. That's all it takes. And as I read more and more, it's like, well, okay, yeah, I guess if you're if you're a stalker, if you're obsessed with somebody, that would be all it takes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, oh, definitely. That's the, obviously the guy was unhinged, and I think that's the thing. It's a shame that 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 was the trigger. Something that really, yeah. at the end of the day, was more or less innocent. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the context of this movie, everybody is in bed with somebody else at one point or another. Does that make them Hollywood whores? That just makes them part of another movie. Exactly, and that's the thing. Is that at the end of the day, everybody's just doing it. It's that it's mm-hmm. not meant. It's not. I guess it's maybe what set them off is the fact that it was so hollow, but again, we're not going to analyze the, the, the actions of a psychotic. Yeah, we didn't get a, an interview spot with him, and uh, and I think he's still alive, so we can't even yeah. contact him through seance modities. You know, we'd have to actually take a trip to a jail to visit him if he has visitors. Oh, no. that's, 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 a, that's a horrible seance field trip. <laughs> Visiting people without parole. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's not too cool. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that might be uh, you know we're we're we might be ahead of our time, I should say, in in uh, proposing that. <laughs> yes, no, no, we're good. We're good. We're gonna stay home. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the Marsha Clark thing. That blew me away for sure. You know what a small world we live in. That type of thing. So uh, I guess to end off our little. Uh, a little Rebecca Schaefer uh, murder tangent. Uh, should we expect in maybe two or three years a Quentin Tarantino film about the Rebecca Schaefer murders where uh, Brad Pitt oh, and geez. Leo beat up Robert John Bardo? <laughs> oh, they flamethrower him. They flamethrower him. They, they, they answered the door with a flamethrower in a can of uh, dog food. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I was reading this, I definitely, you know, because it's been so recent, because uh, I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I even saw The Haunting of Sharon Tate. I had that story in my mind. I was like, it's a different setting, of course, but it, it still made me think about, you know, finding her in her home and killing her. And, you know, no, no, um, what is it, Janie Folger, the Folger's heiress in this yes. story. But uh, Quentin Tarantino works somebody in, for sure. Somebody, you'll see somebody, some poor actress will have to show her feet. Well, so... <laughs> Some poor actress, say, I'll take her shoes off. I was going to say, Tarantino's going to get somebody to play Paul Bartel in this oh, movie. <laughs> it'll be Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt Paul plays Paul Bartel. Now, now that, I could get behind. A Paul Bartel biopic ending in Rebecca Schaefer's murder, directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> crazy. Absolutely crazy. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Berries, we love you, but... Uh, don't come after us, please. No, don't go. Don't go to please. the DMVs in New York State or Colorado. Okay, I was about to say don't give them that information, but they already have it, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, they know where I live because of that stupid minion inflatable too. <laughs> now I really have to steal it. <laughs> it's still there, folks. It's there all the way in March. <laughs> it's filled with coronavirus. They're afraid to deflate it. <laughs> Keeping it timely, folks. Keeping it timely. Yep. So yeah, I think that that's kind of the um, like we said, it's a it's a connection to this movie that's a more of a bummer than anything. But it's the it's the biggest thing you find when you research this movie that one of our stars in quotes, one of the actresses in it, you know, who had a supporting role, uh, was murdered shortly afterwards. And I, I think you're exactly right. That's why this is probably not worth anybody's time to touch from a legal or financial aspect. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame because apparently it's been released overseas, like on DVD. Mm-hmm. So okay, okay. 
So it exists. It, it, it'll get out there eventually. So, somebody will, will eventually. There's money to be made here. Yeah. <laughs> One day. All right. Well, okay. I'm with, uh, at the end of our murder tangent, uh, I did have some scenes that I wanted to mention because there were some I really, really enjoyed in here. And probably my favorite scene in the movie is uh, after that first night. I think it's the first night after the wake before the brunch happens. I guess to preface this, we have multiple scenes in this movie of characters interacting put to piano music, like classical piano music in in the context of the film being played by Willie, the uh, the son of Mary Warrenov, who's terminally ill, all that stuff. And it's great. It is really, really good piano music. But I absolutely love the third times it com- third time it comes around because we basically get an extended in one house walk of shame scene between all of our characters while this classical piano music is playing. And that's where the Paul Bartell really shines for me in this movie. Because I don't have the order written down or anything, but it's, you know, like what, Ed Begley Jr. comes out of his room and then he goes into another room. Wallace Shawn comes out. It's like a, um, it's a much more melancholy and depressing version of like a Benny Hill sketch, you know? where people are going indoors and leaving doors and they're all seeing each other briefly or, or missing each other briefly. I, I really loved that scene because it just kind of showed off that, you know, the, the sexual immorality of these people that they've made these decisions and they have to live with them. And then when they're faced by others, they're just kind of like trying to play it off. Cause I think at the end of that scene, Ed Begley Jr. And Tobel run into each other. And they're both mm-hmm. kind of like, well, yeah, we're half undressed, but let's just go to Rodeo Drive today. Ha ha, you know, and it doesn't really come up till later. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 yeah, you got, you get the drift. Yeah, that, <laughs> I think that I can was that. definitely my most, in, the most intriguing scene to me for sure, followed up by the second most intriguing scene when they do have brunch. Because this is where everything comes to a head. All our characters are sitting on the, the, the lawn table, you know, having brunch. And they're all, you know, taking jabs at each other with what they know, what they don't know. It's being revealed, all that stuff. And I have to mention, I'm sure you noticed, Zach, but this is when, at brunch, Kelly, the journalist who's doing the piece for Lifestyle Magazine on Claire, is coming to interview her. And she's meeting them for brunch. This is played by none other than Susan Sager, as we know her, Doris the Dominatrix from Eating Raul. (laughs) And I I just chalk this up as to, you know, we had Doris be the blind nun, the immigration worker, the VD nurse, and now... She's the lifestyle magazine journalist. Because <laughs> why wouldn't she be? Same character. <laughs> but I, I really love this scene because I think this is the first scene where, once, like I said, everything comes to a head. But I think this is where Wallace Shawn really gets to shine with his disdain and anger for how we. I, I gathered he left Mary Warrenov like nine months ago or something prior to the events of this movie. But now he wants her back, and in that time span, he knew Tobel in Hawaii and was having sex with her, but then left her or, like, disappeared on her somehow. And he really gets to shine because all his anger kind of bubbles up because the, the first scene he's in, he's pissed, but I think he's, like, drunk and he's, he's depressed and he's crying. That's the quote I said at the beginning where he's like, I don't deserve to be in this house. I don't deserve to be let in this house! And... 
but this is finally one I feel like he gets to reach his peak as a character. And, you know, he's the one who starts everything off because everybody's just talking about nonsense, like the weather or how they heard about some house burned down like miles from there. And he's kind of kicks off the animosity with everybody by saying, Christ, this phony table talk is enough to make anybody an arsonist. There's supposedly 17 separate fires going. 17? Spread over two or three counties. The winds are fanning it. Hmm, no wonder I couldn't sleep. The winds breed depression. I recommend junk food until you're ready to vomit. Then a bracing saltwater enema. The windstorm of shame, the wild palms beat, they were with ill, drum of annihilation. Um, Rosa, would you find us some, some locks? Can we please stop talking about the fucking wind? Howard, Christ, this phony table talk's enough to make anyone an arsonist. <laughs> and, and he just starts, like, going off on everybody, and then you get to see him trip over his own words when, you know, he gets information that Tobel had sex with Frank or... You know, that uh, and Ed Begley Jr. met Tobel after he left Tobel. And, and this goes back to what I was saying, where this movie kind of works well as just playing it out as reality would play out without telling the audience everything. Because once again, like a reality show, if you're in that position, if you're angry at somebody, say, hey, because they had sex with somebody else, because uh, Elizabeth had sex with Raul or Juan in this movie, and you're trying to do damage to that relationship, you're going to think you have all the, the, the cannons in your corner. But he realizes he doesn't, and he spews it out, and, he, and you get to see him kind of take as much damage as everybody else does. And once again, it's, it's, a, it's reality, almost, mm. you know? And it's, oh, it's, it's fantastic. This, is, this part of the movie, these last few scenes, I was like, yes, it's all coming together. Let's do it. Oh, and I, I was just getting into it so much. And, and I hope one day, no, I know, one day... <sighs> I will say to somebody, this phony table talk is enough to make anybody an arsonist because I hate small talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene, that scene kind of glued everything together. And, you know, even Claire, she, she doesn't get her. The journalist runs off and she's all upset like you ruined my one chance to make my comeback and whatnot. And, and you kind of get what she's saying in the context of this movie. But at the same time, the audience and I'm sure some people at that brunch table have to think to the back in the back of their heads. Her husband's wake was last night. Yep. Like, this This is so condensed. This movie only takes place really over, what, two days in a morning, it seems. Yeah, it's a weekend. Yeah, and, and this is when it all comes together, like that reality show, and I absolutely enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, no, this, for the most part, it's a pretty cohesive film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No disagreement here. I also have to mention uh, one of the earlier scenes with Wallace Shawn, uh, it's a line that it, it got me, it hit me hard. I don't know why, Zach, you're probably going to roll your eyes when I mention it, but uh. Wallace Shawn shows up to the brunch table on the first day and you see Tobel like walk off screen and you don't know why you think it's because of what she's known about the family and stuff like that. And Ed Begley Jr. gets really angry at him because, you know, he, he's, uh, Wallace Shawn is the one who walked down to his sister eight, nine months ago, whatever. And, Ed Begley Jr. like grabs Wallace Shawn. They got what a foot and a half height between them, yep. and Ed Begley Jr.'s towering over him, grabbing his lapel, and he's like, he's like, you can't just waltz back in here like Ozzy and Harriet. And Wallace Shawn says, he says, I can waltz in like Ozzy, I can waltz in like Harriet, 
but I can't waltz in like both Ozzy and Harriet. It's just too taxing. And then he gets like thrown across the lawn and I, I lost it. I'm like, that's, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but it, it's just insane for this kind of reality structure. Oh, I, I love that line. It's just too taxing. <laughs> come here, come here. Peter! You think you can make my sister's life a living hell to waltz back in like Ozzy and Harriet, huh? Down, boys, down. Peter, I can waltz in like Ozzy, or I can waltz in like Harriet, but I can't waltz in like Ozzy and Harriet. It's just too taxing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it has some great one-liners. That's it's it's not lacking in that department by any means. No, no, not at all, not at all. And then even I think you know we get some great um, uh, sight gags. One that stood out to me is uh, when Toe Bell shows up and and Mo Vandekamp shows up, and he's like, "This is my dog, Bojangles," which I definitely take as a reference to the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Mister Bojangles, his dog up and died. Mister Bojangles. And uh, I, she's, she's like, oh, what a nice dog. And he, Paul Bartell drops the dog or puts the dog on the couch. And we just get like 40 seconds of this dog going hard into Tobel's crotch. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. And yes. it's, it's just so extended. And I'm like, oh, my God. Because at first I'm like, oh, this is, this is something I've seen before. I've definitely have seen dogs go into people's crotches before. That's not new. But it, then it keeps going. It keeps cutting back to her just like giggling and then eventually rolling on the floor and this dog is just burying itself into her junk and i'm like oh this is insane <laughs> but that's sort of stuff you'd like that's a thing i'd expect from this movie like not like a lot like it harps on it a little too much but that's the sort of stuff to be like oh okay like it's it's just lowest common denominator enough where i couldn't see that happening in eating raul mm, you're absolutely right you're absolutely right yeah Oh, God, that's just insane. I'm thinking about it right now. It's just crazy. <laughs> I think I think the other scene I wanted to mention uh, in a whole is the intro. Because this movie starts, as I say in my notes, it comes out of the gate hard with a dead body at a dinner table and people talking about it, hot liquid being thrown on the maid, and then Paul Bartel shooting it. Her, the maid. Of course, it's a dream sequence, as we get from Raul Juan in this movie. But I, I was kind of like, okay, I'm on board. Like, where's this going, you know? Because Paul Bartel what, put, pulls out the little pistol, and he's like, Mary or Claire, Jacqueline Bissett goes, no, she knocked over my husband's plant. I want her to suffer like the plant suffered. And I'm like, the plant can probably still be saved. You just poured like boiling milk on this woman. She, she's not going to be okay. That, that's a fantastic Rob dialogue, though. It's like, she ruined my plant. Now I want her to suffer. That's, yes. that's Rob dialogue. Oh, yeah. There's probably, see, I, I didn't go back and do it, but after watching this movie, 
I was thinking that there might be something in that initial dream sequence that is kind of telling or thematic for this movie. Do you remember, the thing that comes to mind is that, you know, everybody's around the dinner table. Um, they're talking about the dead body of the of the ex-husband, or the, the dead, deceased husband. And then Claire hears the plant break or something breaks. She runs in. It's the maid. Hot liquid goes on her. Some character runs to Raul and says, it's Rosa. They killed Rosa. Do you remember which character that was? Was it Zandra or was it somebody else? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, and so that that's what I'm gonna have to do a correction, but that's what I'm thinking. If I go back and watch that dream sequence, you know, maybe it's Mary Warrenov. Maybe that's kind of, you know, illustrating their relationship later because the dream sequence does end with Raul kissing Claire, not Mary Warrenov, and and he, that's not the bet that they make going forward. Yeah, I that that, that opening sequence is pretty intentionally jarring. Sure. But it really it throws you for a loop, especially considering how dense this film gets with all the characters and relationships. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, before I knew it was a dream sequence, I was like, I'm ready to buckle the fuck up. Like, I'm down for wherever we're going with this. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that first, like, I'd say 20 minutes is a ride. And there's just so much going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we mentioned it already, the scene where Paul Bartel gets a little sexual with Zandra, Mo Van de Camp. The other thing I didn't like about this movie, I don't think I like it in any movie where it ever happens, that the last shot that we get, or the last little bit of scenes, frames that we get in this movie, is when um, they're all going their separate ways. They've all found, you know, peace. I wouldn't say happiness, but maybe peace to some extent. Yeah, peace of mind. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the dead husband ghost shows up, and he's holding Bojangles the dog, and the dog talks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Oh, you don't like that? No. What is, the dog? I don't even know what the dog. I don't remember what the dog says. Doesn't say anything meaningful, right? Doesn't it say something like "Oh, that's it's, the end of the movie"? You it's, know, it's, it's it's essentially Porky Pig. It's Porky Piggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's an afterlife dog, <laughs> but it shouldn't speak. It's an afterlife dog. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> ghost dog, afterlife dog. It's all the same thing. Family dog. <laughs> yeah, I that this this movie's all over the place. This feels like Paul. I, I think there was a part of Paul Bartel that wanted to be commercial. I think he wanted to be partial. Mm. Par, yeah, I'm sorry. I want to say part partial. Com, combining potential and commercial. <laughs> I think he wanted that commerciality to his works, but not lose the essence. So he tried compromising, and by doing that, you kind of get something that just feels like a. I don't want to say a mess because it's a pretty good mess. But it just, it feels like a little bit of everything. Yeah, a little bit of everything is a good way to put it, because I don't think we've mentioned it, but at the end of the movie, Raul decides to lose the bet willingly, so he has to have sex with Frank. Not has to, of course, you know, it's not like a rape scene or anything, but he, he willingly gives himself over to it. And right before it happens, like he's getting a massage from Frank, and it cuts to Raul's face, and he looks at the camera and goes, you live long enough, you're bound to do some weird shit. Yep, yep. And, it, and I'm kind of like, well, that that's that's what I got from maybe a third of the movie? Not the whole movie. Like, I thought that was going to summarize things better than it actually did. But I think you're right in saying that this is all over the place. Yeah, it's, it's trying to do a little bit of everything. And I think with Paul Bartel, he's not capable of lowering his bar 
And I think when he does, you get something like this where it works, but you have to put that little like kind of like raise your voice at the end. It works, mm-hmm. and that's that's the problem. He's not a yeah. he, the the work the creativity in the work suffers when he compromises. Yeah, yeah, that is that is absolutely the truth, and that's kind of what I feel happened in uh, the long shot with the slapstick comedy. Is that you know um, he, he he didn't have anything to work with he just had surface level slapstick comedy absolutely and it doesn't work a fish gets yeah. cpr a fish <laughs> <It's> stupid <laughs> I, there you go he doesn't even breathe in through the gills he breathes in through the fish's mouth doesn't work i think that way. would like blow up the fish's intestines if we did a strong breath through a fish a fish is small right like our the force of our breath would like destroy the fish <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, I, I never have to watch that, so I don't have I don't have I, I don't have to worry about this. <laughs> You're right. You never have to watch that, and I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again. So, <laughs> all, all right, right Rob, I guess. So, yeah. Were there any other scenes that, you want to touch? I this this is not really a movie. Like, yeah, you have you have your moments, but there's really not a scene that like screams out to me. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, with it's, you. Just it's, those... it's a movie of moments. It's it's yeah. it's. We'll get to our recommendation in a moment, though. But yeah, absolutely. So I guess then my question for you becomes, Zach. After I watched scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, there was one final film directed by Paul Bartel, known as Shelf Life, which oh, I God. did watch. Oh to God! Finalize my filmography of Paul Bartel. I have now seen all nine movies he's directed. Would you like to get into this at the end of our questions, or would you like to switch some stuff up? What are your thoughts? Maybe questions nah, first? Nah, nah, get over with. Get part of the whole Bartel thing. Let's wrap it up properly. Oh, right, the history. Perfect. So after Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, he directs his final film, Shelf Life, which had trouble finding distribution, I read, but had a release date of 1993 from all the uh, sources I could find. The only Paul Bartel film released... When both Zach and I were alive, all others came before our time. There was one that came out when we were like between zero and one years old. (laughs) Yes. Shelf Life was a very difficult movie for me to find. It was another one that I had to get through true TV movies. And I am so glad that I did. The beginning of this movie is absolutely insane. It's a very quick scene where a couple... And their three kids are watching TV and they see breaking news footage of the Kennedy assassination. And it cuts to the father and he goes, well, I knew this would happen. Come on, kids. Let's go down into the bunker. And they go into a secret bunker, like not a bunker that they can just open it like a cellar door for. Like it's hidden behind a bookcase. And they go down and it does the credits shelf life says three names because there's only three people in the movie and then it goes 30 years later and the entire movie is one day in the life of these now 30 something year old people who have been living in this bunker their entire lives if you didn't know this is a rob type of movie this movie, it is a stage play. I think that's the best way to put it, is it all takes place in this bunker. It's very, very small. It's only three characters. And the angles do a lot of work, and the imagination does a lot of work to keep it interesting. 
But it is one day in their life down here. It starts them waking up, ends with them going to bed. And it's it's crazy because just like we said about scenes from the class struggle, we have to gain things slowly. There's no exposition of like, you know, well, what it, how, how did they do this? How did they do that? Why do they have electricity? You know, why do they still have food after 30 years? There's none of that. It's just one day in the life. And you can tell, you slowly start to get the feeling that they're trying to keep the rituals that their parents taught them alive. And and there's even, like, they have a prayer that they say, a prayer in air quotes that they say before they eat, which involves them dancing while holding rifles, talking about how underground is the is where they need to live, and reciting things that are combination of Bible verses, the Pledge of Allegiance, commercials, and it ends with play ball instead of amen. Now I lay me down to eat and pledge allegiance to the flag, for one nation is invisible, the body of our Lord. Hut, 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 left hut, right hut, all the way around hut, right hut, left hut, right hut, left hut, all the way up hut, all the way down hut, back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, safe and sound inside. And the movie just gets crazier and crazier. Like, it's so fast-paced. It'll just go from them, you know, they're doing something, like dancing around. There's a lot of choreography in this. And you don't know why they're doing it. And then it'll quickly and abruptly switch to them singing in rounds about how their parents died and how they need to, like, what they need to watch out for when they open canned food to know if it's good or bad. And then it'll like just switch in the next moment to dance hall music, and they'll be like crumping around, throwing their arms. And uh, I'm watching this in the first 20 minutes. I'm like, I fucking love this. Like this is this is waiting for Godot, but like turned up to 11. You know, like where the characters are doing something, not just talking in nonsense. But as I keep watching it, because it's only 80 minutes, I keep getting the sense that everything they're doing and saying to each other, which I think you can describe as they're playing a series of games to pass time, everything they're doing is recreations and repetitions of, like, TV shows, of of tropes in TV shows, of movies, of commercials, but they're getting it wrong to some extent. Because their TV no longer works, and they've been down here for who knows how long, and they th- their memory has all decayed about how these things go. And half of the strangeness comes from the fact that they're using words and references that don't make sense. Like, they literally don't make sense. Like, they use the word incontinent a lot oh. to mean something very different, different from what incontinent actually means. And that's just one example. But this the whole dialogue is littered with this stuff. But at the same time... The second half of the strangeness comes from how these three characters understand each other when they interact. Like, it is the the intriguing part of this film was, are they playing a game or are they actually interacting with each other? Because when they play games, they have emotions. They get angry with each other. But you quickly realize in some cases that they're just doing that to kill time. And you kind of have to parse through when are they actually having true human sibling interaction versus when is it just another game. And it all kind of comes to this great culmination where at the end, when they have their supper time, we get a scene where they're deciding on a new game to play based on a real thing that happened earlier in the movie. 
and they're discussing, well, like, how do we start this? What do we call it? How do we handle it? Who would you play? Who would I play? And it makes a lot of stuff more confusing, Mm -hmm. but it's amazing. Like, I was enthralled with this film. I was like, what the hell am I seeing? And overall, I already said it makes me think of Waiting for Godot, but turned up to 11. But the other thing, once I finished it, Zach, you're going to love this. Oh. This is Paul Bartel's version of Rabbits. <laughs> oh, weird, no. Weird, oh, disconnected no. dialogue of three characters that switch between talking and poetry and dancing and and you you just trying to wrap your whole brain around it. Their their parents are dead. Their skeletons are in the back room that they never go to, but they keep all like the empty cans of food in there. Canned pears play a huge role in this movie, which makes me think of creamed corn from Twin Peaks. It was amazing, Zach. Amazing. Take your word for it, Rob. <laughs> This was definitely one of those movies. Anything, where I was anything like, that includes rabbits makes me very, very leery. Anything that any oh sort of reference to rabbits kind of scares me off. Oh, it's so good. It, it was. I was. I was very surprised. And uh, after I watched this film, all eighty minutes of it, and I looked back to my research when it said this had trouble finding distribution. I went, mm, I get it. I get <laughs> it. Oh, geez. Oh, god. If Rob gets it. If Rob gets why he couldn't be practical, well, yeah, oh, I mean, geez, Louise, once again, must be really bad. Once again, for rabbits, you know, rabbits exist as what vi- small vignettes in Inland Empire, and then David Lynch eventually had to release it on his website. That never got released. <laughs> I, isn't that on the uh, short films collection that he released? Like I think in the mid two thousands. Hmm, I don't remember. P- quite possibly, but I know on the short film collections like three men getting sick in the alphabet. Those are all less than 10 minutes or maybe like 12 minutes tops. Mm-hmm. Rabbits is 50 minutes. So maybe it was vignettes of rabbits. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I think some of that stuff made it out. Okay. So tune in next Could week. Be wrong. We discuss rabbits on cinematics. No, no. The capital. Oh. And oh no. Rabbits is rabbits is great. Shelf life was great. I uh, I definitely think Shelf Life is an, a movie I want to see again, but it needs some time to cool down because it is just like a fever dream for sure. <laughs> Indeed it is, Rob. Indeed it is. So I think the only other thing before our questions, if you want to do it, is since I have seen all nine Paul Bartel movies, I have ranked them. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I don't get to do this a lot because I don't usually work through full directors. Especially on Cinemodities, right? We, this is our first director series. Before this, we had an actor series with Dee yes. Norris. Everything else has been some weird, you know, uh, label we've given to things that we've stuck to or not. So, of the nine films that he directed, I'm going to give you, Zach, and our audience my breakdown. And the only thing I have to say is this will likely change as my life goes on because some of these I've seen a bunch. Some of them I've only seen once. But like I said, there's nine in all, and I'm going to go in reverse because I'm a, I'm a countdown type of person, if you know my top 50 of the year. Number nine, one Zach did not see, Cannonball with David Carradine. That is my least favorite of all of them. Number eight, Lust in the Dust. Number seven, The Long Shot. And I did like The Long Shot a little better than Lust in the Dust because I think I said to Zach off mic, the long shot, even though it was groaners, there were actual jokes in it, and I was waiting to see if I would be interested by them, where Lust in the Dust was more boring. But they're close. 
they're close for sure. Number six, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. This is where it started to get tough for me. Number five, not for publication. Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Oh, it's so good. I cannot wait to see that movie again. Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Number four, Death Race 2000. Number three, Eating Raul. Number two, Shelf Life. Oh, we and all number know number one. one. Yeah, we know number Cinematic one. Cinematic masterpiece, Private Parts is number one. So Private Parts and Shelf Life were re- are really close. If Once I watch Shelf Life again, they, those might switch. But that's what I got. Cannonball, Lust in the Dust, Long Shot, Scenes from the Class Struggle, Not for Publication, Death Race 2000, Eating Raul, Shelf Life, Private Parts. I'm glad, I did Rob. it. I'm glad. Woo! You did it, Rob? So, so you, your ranking would be uh, number one, Private Parts. Number two, Private Parts. Well, Private Parts Number three, Private Parts. <laughs> no, Rob, number one is Revolver. Number two is The Sopranos. And number three is Private Parts. <laughs> number three is, is Adventure Time. <laughs> Adventure Time. And somewhere in there, sprinkle in some Animal Collective, just for good measure. Um, then R. Kelly. Uh, of course. That's odd sack. Uh, no, I, Private Parts has to be because there's a lot going on in that movie. Yes. Um, Eating Raul has a lot. Okay. I think they're two different movies. I think I think Private Parts has the most depth to it. Whereas Eating Raul, I think you can kind of for the most part decipher what's going on in it. Doesn't mean it's any less mm-hmm. sure, deep. Sure. It's just it's it's easier to sift through. And Death Race 2000 is really neat, but the, the more I think about that movie, it's it's rather one note. It's gr- it's a great one-time movie. You watch it, and you kind of get everything you need from it. Sure. And um, Lust in the Dust is disposable. You don't need that. <laughs> and Class Struggle, Class Struggle is probably worth re-watching once every, I don't know, five to ten years. I think I think if I watched it again five-plus years, I wouldn't mind it. I think it'd be neat. Because I think it's, a, it's, again, a lot of that the the the, the, the oh god I almost said drama that's an understatement um just the the stuff around that this movie kind of, not that it makes it feel icky but it's just it, it definitely hangs around it like a cloud oh absolutely absolutely yep so yeah. I think that I think that's part of the reason I put not for publication before that because not for publication is not similar in themes or you know ideas of class struggle but Class struggle, it's kind of like when I was watching it and I looked into it, you know, that, like we said, that murder kind of hung over it. And it was a little more surface level. Not for publication is a little more Paul Bartel weirdness, but those those are those are very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, not for publication, though, as we said, had a great musical number in the middle of it, which is a fantastic song. It's going to be my ringtone one day, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet, Rob. I bet. Baby. You bring out the beast in me. You're the cat's meow. Meow. I mean, you're neater than a cheetah. <sighs> you are the feline to whom I make a beeline immediately. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. <sighs> you're the cock of the walk. <laughs> you're just as regal as an eagle. 
a pterodactyl With whom I could be tactile, believe you me Cause baby, you bring out the beast in me When it comes to the animal urge No one can equal mine For with you, the urge to merge Is working overtime me lower than a boa you're an opossum with whom my love could blossom in any tree cause baby you bring out the beast in me no no this is my big solo animals are so absurd when it comes to romance it's all true those things you've heard animals just want to Little Nancy Allen. I think that's as long, a great as long as, he's happy, as long as he's happy, folks. It's all I'm matters. happy. Yes, I am happy. I think that's a great segue. What you said about scenes from the class struggle to go to our questions. So I'm going to throw it over to you, Zach. Cinemodities and late night. What do you think? Um, uh, it's kind of one of these ones where I guess cinemodity, yes. Late night movie, no, because it's it's too convoluted. Like with the characters, like if you're trying to watch this like at ten o'clock at night, you kind of get lost. Like okay, th- even though it's easy to go through, mm-hmm. this is this would probably be a better movie for like a Friday night, like more of like like a like nine o'clock, but not a late night movie. This would be a, a early night movie, like like you sit down at like eight o'clock. This would probably wasn't back in the day a fun movie to watch on HBO, like back in like the mid nineties. Hmm, interesting. Um, interesting. It's not it's not a late night movie. It misses that mark. It's too conv- it's, The character relationships are too convoluted at first. Um, Cinemodies, I think the movie is a little just enough of it. I, I'm gonna. Um, do a split in how I'm gonna view it as a cinemati. I think uh-huh. the movie's just convoluted enough. No, both of them are yes, but I'm gonna say yes for two different uh, reasons. Okay, I thought I thought you had to say, well, since we just finished our two year anniversary, indeterminate, indeterminate. Fuck you, Rob. See you in a year. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I think it's a cinemati. First, because it's just it's it's ahead of its time, as we've discussed. And two, that this is a film that's more or less been entirely forgotten. Like I know Rob Rob knows, and I think I've hinted at it on some episodes. So I'm utterly fascinated, but we're gonna be the first people to talk about something. Like think about it. It's the internet. Everything has been discussed on the internet in some capacity. Yeah. Yet there's a very real possibility that Cinemodies is the first to actually ever record an entire episode on this movie on the internet. <laughs> it's it's it. up there it's up there with real scary stories in eighteen yeah. in that level. I would not have expected it, especially for this, for sure, with how we both knew about it, I guess. But I guess we knew about it surprisingly. Yeah, it's hard to believe that there's more 
internet discussions of wonder shows than there is about this movie. <laughs> like, let that sink in. There are more internet discussions of wonder shows than. You know how much the corrupt U.S. Army would pay for a discussion about scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills? Zero dollars! Oh. <laughs> uh, Chooties! <laughs> Christopher Maloney's best performance. You got, you, got, you, got, you got one episode of Wonder Shows in versus 12 seasons of Swoo. <laughs> oh. I was going to make the joke about uh, God shooting himself, and I realized that'd be in poor taste in light of everything that we've talked about in this episode. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, God, Wonder Shows. In. I, I know I said it back on the Wonder Shows in episode, but I will never forget when I showed that. My buddies from Pittsburgh came out here, and I showed them one episode, and uh, we finished the episode, and I go, that's it. I was like, that's it. We watched one episode <laughs> that, of Wonder that's Shows. That's it. I like and, that. It ends, and I, that's what I said. I'm like that. I'm like we finished it, and he's and they and like all of them are like, what? I thought that was three episodes. I thought every time I got the warning, it was a new episode. And then when they calm down, they're like, I don't think I ever want to watch that again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the correct response. That is the uh, well, yeah. that's the um, that's the uh, I don't know, mentally stable response, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe not correct because you got people like Zach and I who are like, do it again. Do it again. I want to see that episode where shit's in reverse for 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Wonder Shows in is, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a trip. Like, it's legit. Like, it it messes with your mind, folks. Ain't that it the truth? It messes with your mind. <laughs> Imagination. Imagination. <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, I think I'm... I'm agreeing with you, Zach. Maybe for different reasons, but for cinemodities, I got to definitely. And I think it goes along the lines of what I said earlier, is that I see this as ahead of its time in a way that no one could foresee this is what every single producer of modern reality TV would ever wish for. Some slice of life, sexually charged soap opera. And I give it major props. I I don't think I've ever seen a, a scripted movie quite like this that does it so realistically for all the reasons we've discussed. And I think for that reason, it's absolutely a cinemodity. Late night, I, I'm going to have to say no. I don't think this checks any of the boxes. If it checks some of the boxes, definitely not enough. I think this might bore people, just like you said, getting everybody on track with who the characters are and how they're related. Maybe the opening scene would get somebody to say, what the fuck? But you know, there's nothing really meaningful that I think could be gained from this on a late night viewing. Um, because it's just going to, like we said, it's, it's almost, uh, forgettable in the sense of maybe not forgettable, but more tame in the sense of what people are used to now in the sexuality mm-hmm. aspect. Oh, definitely. So look at that. We're not split. Good way to end the Paul Bartel series. We're in agreement. We did it. Woo-hoo. So you ready for our snacks? Go ahead, Rob. I'm kind of, I, I really don't have a lot of snacks for this, so I'm kind of curious where you're going to go with it. I don't have a lot of snacks either. Because this was not a very snack-heavy movie. Sure, there were some food items that were mentioned that I left off because I didn't really do anything with them. Like, what, there's one scene where Raul is doing something with fondue, but it's just fondue. And I'm like, what the, what the hell's the point of just fondue in our restaurant? So I came up with two. Uh, one comes from the beginning when we get the exposition that uh, Juan owes money to whoever, the money lenders. And, you know, they show up in the garage and he's like, they're like, what do you got in the bag? And he's like, oh, this, that, the other thing. You want some of this? Oh, you want chicken? I'll make you some. 
And the the guy's like, no, do you have a rabbit? I want a rabbit. So I figured, Zach, since it happens quite frequently, when our money lenders come around, be it the government, be it Mark Cuban, be it the gangsters from, you know, the corner of the uh, car wash street that we have to wash all our dishes at, how about when our money, len- money lenders come around, we have some rabbit for them. Maybe to appease oh, them okay. while we run out the back door of the infant void of the restaurant. And we make our Rob and Zach wait staff deal with them. Hmm. Kind of like a distraction, you know? Distract Mark Cuban? Yes, because that, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know anything more about Mark Cuban than what he appears as on Shark Tank, but I'm sure we could distract him with some nicely cooked rabbit, right? Rabbit. Yeah, maybe some rabbit. What goes with rabbit? Like sweet potatoes and green beans? <laughs> I, I've never had rabbit, so I can't comment. I think I, I only think I've had rabbit once or twice, and it was ve- I was very neutral on it. Like I don't remember it very well, and I didn't dislike it, so it was one of those types of things. It's not like when I've had some of the other weird meats, like when I've had yak. It was like, holy shit, this is crazy. This is really good. Like, I'm going to remember it. Rabbit was kind of right down the middle. But I think with this snack as well, I wanted to ask you, is there any, like, connotation you got from this? Because the the money lender, the gambler, the loan shark, for all intents and purposes, he was like, you got rabbit? I really want rabbit. And it was kind of like he was harping on that. Did that make sense to you in the Mm -hmm. movie or was just other food? Uh, I didn't really pick up on it in that sense. Okay, yeah, it seemed like he was hitting the notes a little harder than I would expect, and I was like, I was like, I was like, if I lend money to somebody and they don't pay me back, I don't call him a rabbit, you know? Yeah, but who knows what sort of, who knows what sort of oddity, though, that's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another layer for, uh, for us to dig into and talk to Paul Bartel through the Ouija board. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I, I don't know. But rabbit, I mean, you know, sure. Pigs in a blanket is my next snack, but specifically, pigs in a blanket to be circulated. Because we get that line, I think, where Juan comes on to uh, Mary Warnow's character, Elizabeth, and she pushes him off, or she shrugs him off, and she says something like, okay, now, Juan, go get some pigs in a blanket and circulate them. And I, lis- I just loved that phrasing, because... Uh, whether or not you could tell, Rob and Zach are not overtly wealthy people. We don't have wait staff other than in the restaurant. We don't have parties where hors d'oeuvres get served by silver platters and people walking around. So I've never gotten the chance to say to a wait staff or a butler, go get some pigs in a blanket and circulate them. But I just love the use of that word. You're circulating pigs in a blanket. <laughs> When I think of circulation, I think of blood. You know, my feet are cold because I got more circulation, you know. And so it's like, let's circulate some pigs in a blanket. And I figured, well, all I wrote down for my snack was pigs in a blanket to be circulated. I think this could tie in really well to some of our uh, bigger events. I know we've talked about, like, the Sin Emodities having a birthday party there, about maybe the Vox Lux animatronic stage having a party that's, you know, relegated to right in front of it. Maybe we have, very much like our Hudsucker Proxy episode, where we talk about serving dainties as refreshments, we could also have pigs in a blanket to be circulated. So we're kind of rounding out the the party atmosphere of the Cinemodities restaurant. Because mm. it certainly certainly shouldn't be for everybody. Because you, you know, Zach, 
if we're circulating pigs in a blanket around the whole restaurant, we need an infinite amount of pigs in a blanket. <laughs> sure. I don't know how we do. I don't know how we do that, Zach. And if we did have an infinite amount of pigs in a blanket, they would all be sent up to our office to my desk because I fucking love pigs in a blanket. <laughs> oh, okay. What's not to like, right? Yeah, absolutely. Little, little, uh, little weenies with some croissant wrapping around them. Oh God, they're so good. So Robert, pigs in a saying, blanket. You're saying maybe we need on top of the caviar glory hole, maybe a pigs in the blanket glory hole. Mm, I don't know. Would that be really circulating them or just pushing them out? Like I feel like the glory hole is the opposite of circulation because it's just hemorrhaging the product. Like we would, we, oh, we would need some type of like apparatus, like a sculpture, like a hollow sculpture that is constantly moving pigs in the blanket <gasps> through it. And it'd be transparent so people could go off to it and see that this was moving pigs in the blanket through it, but they couldn't get the pigs in the blanket because they're being circulated. They're not being expelled like the caviar is. Okay, Zach, you sold me. This is this is the antithesis to the caviar glory hole. A closed system of circulating pigs in a blanket. That's what it's going in the spreadsheet as. Closed system of circulating pigs in a blanket. Boom. This I like is why the Zach and I work together so well. We know what we're thinking. I like the idea of hemorrhaging the product. I, I find that a fascinating concept. Yeah, well that that is what the glory hole's doing, right? <laughs> you're not wrong you're like not it go wrong. It, it's going when the we're not even there like when the restaurant's closed it's just shooting caviar into the ground there's a little there's a little there's a little drain for it to be collected and recycled <laughs> <sighs> all right my snack is i think uh we should have sunday brunch at the restaurant and I don't know. I'm looking at the at the brunch table that they have set before them, and I see orange juice. I see a couple glasses of milk, but it looks like well, champagne. I, yeah, I was about to say there might be some champagne there. Yep, I remember that. That's weird. Champagne's not typically a breakfast dish or like served well, only with, only if you mix it with the orange juice, then you get a mimosa. But I've never had them I, separate. That's what I mean. It's weird. Um, yeah. And if you look, they have like this weird sort of like like a fruit cup, but like it's served in a half melon. <laughs> Now you're making me think that we should serve mimosas as two separate glasses, one of only champagne and one of only orange juice, and we need the customer to take a swig of one and then a swig of the other, and they mix the mimosa in their mouth. It also makes the restaurant employees more work, so they have to uh, go through the car wash twice. It's an additional yep, glass it, to wash. And as we said before, we don't treat our employees well, so this just fits with that motif. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I can't really figure out this fruit like this like fruit cup dish. It's like half a melon with fruit in it. Like literally a melon cut in half and someone just dumps fruit in it. Mm. That's interesting. It's kind of like an all natural bowl for the fruit. I guess, but like I don't know. To give every customer half a melon seems like overkill. That's true. That would be a lot of melons. Even though the total amount of melons would be half of the number of customers, that's still a lot of melons. Huh. That's a lot of melons. <laughs> yeah, but that's my thing. We need Sunday brunch at the restaurant. Ooh, okay, okay. So because you're saying Sunday and I have somehow, you know, decided that seance modities will be taking place on Sunday, are we grouping these things together? Or is seance modities in your mind specifically a later at night type yeah, of thing? Yeah, it's, it's – okay. I, I, like, I like to imagine <sighs> – Come for the brunch? 
stay for the seance. <laughs> <laughs> you only have to wait seven hours in between them. <laughs> I'd say, what time do we want seance, one of these? It would have to be when it's dark out, right? We can't do that in the daylight. That would. That's what I mean. So like, you're talking more than seven. You're talking more than seven hours, and you're well, talking at least like nine. Like brunch would have to be like what eleven, eleven thirty. So like, even if they're done by like one thirty-two, like a late, like they stay oh, okay. like that. Yeah, they still gotta wait like seven hours. Yeah, I was think. I guess I was thinking two to nine, like two p.m. to nine p.m. But it could be I mean, if someone comes early. If someone's a, a early brunch person, then they're gonna wait, you know, even longer. Uh, Rob, I think brunch is like pretty much ends at eleven fifty-nine. Like you could at that point, it's just lunch. Then <laughs> it's just lunch. Okay, I guess I'm not very well versed in what the official qualification of brunches but you're actually I don't know. right <laughs> i'm not an expert either but i think that kind of uh if you're eating a meal after 12 o'clock you really don't have the nerve to call it. like i'm not saying if you sit down at 11 30 you don't eat until noon that's fine but mm-hmm. i think if you're sitting down at like 1201 you kind of have nerve saying brunch ah this is you're bringing up a good you're bringing up a good point because there's a lot of uh, ambiguous definitions we have at the cinematis restaurant and we got to figure them out and brunch is now added to that list Rightfully so. <laughs> Come for the brunch, stay for the seance. Come for the gold, stay for the mold. <laughs> I like this, though, because, you know, this gets people in the restaurant more, and we get them for brunch, we get them for seance. There's a bunch of time in between um, in which they can just wander around lost, trying to get out of the restaurant, and, you know, I guess most likely find other ways they need to spend their money, right? Something like that. Yeah, I don't know. We don't even have we even talked about if there's going to be food at the seances. We can't have food at a seance. No, right? no, that'd be disrespectful. It's just the seance. So dinner has to happen prior to the seance. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll be in the black just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh, we'll geez. finally get out of this billion dollar hole we've dug <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> All right, Rob. So how are we going to end this week's episode? How are we going to wrap up the Paul Bartel series? Well, I think that I definitely have a a, uh, a song to play in reverse from uh, Scenes from the Class Struggle that I think wraps up Paul Bartel in a grand way. But I did want to ask you, Zach, do you want to tell our audience what we're doing next month now that we've finally finished another series? Or are you uh, do you not care about it we, because we, we're starting with a movie we hate? <laughs> well, okay, I'll give everybody a hint. We're not going to say because I think the, I think the title of the series might change because we we already sure. recorded the episode like two weeks ago, but the series might change, or maybe it might not. Depends on what we decide to do. But I think I'll I, I'm going to give a hint that I think if you know anything about movies, it'll give it away. And Rob's going to know exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> okay, enhance. Click, 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 click. 45 minutes of nothing happening. Enhance. Click, 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 click. Zach, have I ever told you Have I ever told you time I went to space? Have I ever told you about the time I saw some stuff that you've never seen before? Does this matter? No. But let me tell you. Folks, next week is not going to be a good week for the Vox Lux animatronic. That's true. I thought you were about to say this is not going to be a good week for our stalkers because they're going to come after us. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in lockdown after next week's episode for sure. <laughs> More so than usual. Yeah, so tune in next week. We'll have a new series for you. Uh, I think also tune in uh, between now and next week. You might get a very special music-related bonus episode of Cinemodities that does not involve Zach. 
maybe he likes that or not. I don't know. But to end this episode, to end our grand Paul Bartel series, there was a big part of me that wanted to play the musical number from Not For Publication in reverse. Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. But I think, after seeing scenes from the class struggle and watching this and hearing the end credits music, that's what we got to play in reverse because it is a rendition of Let's Misbehave by none other than Arnisha Walker, who played Tobel in Scenes from the Class Struggle. And not only is it her, is it Tobel singing this, but at the same time, I think a great way to end out the, the most sexually charged series of cinemodities we've ever had after just around two years is the song Let's Misbehave. What do you think? Can you get behind that? I can dig it, Rob. I can dig okay. it. Okay. Until next time, when we get an update on Paul Bartell from the Seance, and maybe he'll tell me how wrong my rankings are. Thanks, Paul Bartell. I love you. We love you. We hope our audience loves you now, and keep on watching Private Parts.